Hello, good evening everybody and welcome to another episode of Straight Talking English. I am your host, Catherine, S-T-R-H-Talk-English on Twitter, straighttalkingenglish.com, search YouTube slash straighttalkingenglish, you're going to see my first two videos which are up, including the one that goes along with this episode. And if you search the full context on Amazon, you will see the first four full context books. A little bit more as poetry one, as this show is now officially my updates on <laughs> my writing progress. If you like what I'm doing, Patreon slash Straight Talking English, donate to the show. Top tier donors will get a custom episode and essay of their choice. As long as it is actually something to do with literature, I'm not researching the context of meringues or something. Please don't abuse the top tier subscriber generosity, but you can subscribe for as little as a pound a month and buy me coffee. I'm gonna be honest, I need a lot of coffee at the moment. So, today I'm gonna tell you all about William Wordsworth's The Prelude. It is, honestly, one of the things that I hated more than ever when I was 18 because I got set the full prelude for my English A-level and I will explain a little bit more about what that means when it comes up but trust if you'd have asked me when I was 18 what I thought of Wordsworth I would have been uncomplimentary and when I was looking for voice actors my friend from sixth form was like are you doing Wordsworth? I was like, yes, the shame. So I can't actually pinpoint a point in Wordsworth's life where he wrote it because dude wrote it on and off through his whole life over a period of about 30 years. So he'd work on it a little bit and then he'd stop. Work on it a little bit, then stop. So obviously uh, the speaker is looking back on a time where he was a young man. He could be someone who's just become a father, could be someone who's just got married, could be a venerable old man looking back. We don't know, but he's older. And you can't really pinpoint the thing because it went through so many different reviews and stuff and different revisions. That it's actually quite an elusive beast. He did stipulate very clearly that he was not going to get it published until after he died though and you'd think something like that would be super scandalous but there's no scandal in it unfortunately the thing is the prelude is actually really really long like it's about the thickness of one of them gcse revision guides you get or if you've bought one of my books it's about as thick as that and it tells the story of his development as a poet so the first chapter, we'll say for the sake of argument, is him chilling in the Lake District, wondering what he should write about. Then he thinks, actually, the thing I know best is my life. So he tells the story of his childhood, going to school, his adulthood, and then it culminates with him climbing Mount Snowdon. This is from book one of the prelude. So he's quite a young boy when he's doing all this he actually only lived in the lake district for a couple of years as a young man so we can pinpoint how old he was pretty well he's about eight nine years old 
But the prelude was not designed to be released as a work on its own. It was actually decided to be, get this, a prelude. So if you uh, go, if you're a fan of classical music, or you've been to the theatre and there's like an orchestra involved, the bit at the beginning where they play like a sample of some of the tunes that's what a prelude is think like a prologue for shakespeare like an introduction it was building up to i'm an awesome poet you should pay attention to what i'm doing and then it was going to launch into this poem called the recluse like someone who lives alone potentially in a cave the recluse wasn't written he never got round to it It was supposed to be this poem, which changed the face of poetry forever. And we don't know, we don't know. I mean, it might have. It definitely might have. But it might not have. Who knows? We're never going to find it. It was going to be based on Milton's Paradise Lost. And when I was recording the YouTube video for this, I could not remember the name Paradise Lost for the life of me. So you'll see there's a bit in there where I just go, the poetry of John Milton. And once I'd finished film, because I was in my parents' back garden, I just shouted in. I was like, Dad, what did John Milton write? And there's this shout back, Paradise Lost. Because my dad secretly knows loads about poetry and this he is a resource, bless him. But Paradise Lost was going to be this poem. Well, Paradise Lost is a real poem. And it tells the story of Lucifer, who was an angel, getting kicked out of heaven to become the devil as we know him. And his influence on the fall of Adam and Eve, who were happy in the Garden of Eden. And then she eats the apple the snake gives her, and then they get chucked out. As is my understanding. of the story that was going to be the themes that were covered in the recluse of man's fall from grace so you could argue that the prelude that the whole thing of like he steals the boat and he feels bad could have been foreshadowing this massive narrative of mankind's fall from grace But it's also kind of a love poem to a specific place. So Wordsworth lost his mum when he was very young. His dad was largely absent on business in the manner of a Georgian father. You know, you see them once a year at Christmas and pat them on the head. So Wordsworth was raised by a foster family, him and his siblings, in the middle of the Lake District. And from what I can tell, they were basically just left to run wild. And I know the world has changed, but seriously, I said it when I've told it, I'm saying it again. That is terrible parenting. Do not let your child sneak out and steal boats. But yeah, it was this idyllic time where he was a young man and he could do whatever he wanted. He went away to school and he hated it. And the second he could, he got a house in the Lake District and he lived there for the rest of his life. So it's kind of this love letter to a very specific place. He actually wrote a guidebook about the Lake District, which I I got a copy of, but it's kind of, I thought there'd be some insight into his mind, but there really isn't. It's literally just a guidebook. It's like from the top of this hill, you can see the ash trees and this village. If you climb the next hill, and I'm like, 
Okay, fine, I want an insight, I'm not going to get that. But as well as it being a love letter to home, it's also an in the one thing it is an insight into is how smart he is. Wordsworth's big thing that he did in his first collection, Lyrical Ballads, was to describe normal people things. So he would talk about like grass and fences and everyday life and compare that to say like Shelley who's talking about Ozymandias, two great legs. It's very down to earth and people weren't doing that at the time. Like there were other landscape poets but they were a little bit like twee and over the top. I mean compared to Wordsworth, come on. His big thing also was trying to present poetry in normal words. So if there's a character talking, they'll talk like they should. And Wordsworth himself actually had a really strong northern accent, apparently, which I love. It's pretty cool. Um, but this is where it gets weird. It isn't actually how normal people talk. It's how really educated people think normal people talk. So, I, I like, honestly, the only thing that this reminds me of is when I was uh, 18, I got an interview to go to Oxford University because underneath this mockney exterior, I am actually quite smart. And I got through all of it down to um, like the final interviews. And the night before, me and a bunch of these posho 18-year-olds went down the pub. And I was talking about... It's, it's so 90s. I was talking about chavs. And I was like, you know, them tracksuit people. And this lad turns around and says to me, Oh, you mean shavs? I'm like, Jesus Christ, what planet is you from? And that's, that's just what it brings to mind. It's um someone who's rich and very, very, very well educated trying to talk like a normal, like a regular everyone else. And this was actually quite a canny move on his part because it appealed to um, the poetry readers of the Georgian era, um, so who were obviously like quite educated people, like poetry isn't going to appeal to someone who prefers, say, cheap adventure books. But it's also different enough that the poetry reading public think they're interacting with the normal person. I'm not sure if it's conscious or not, but it is very cool. Let's talk a little bit about important people. Let's talk about Jean-Jacques Rousseau. He of the social contract fame. And I was moaning to someone on Friday how much philosophy I've had to read for this series. And they didn't seem to think it was a problem. But I do. No great philosopher. So Jean-Jacques Rousseau was a thinker and writer. If you want to see, actually, unrelated, a really, really good example of an autobiography, read his book called The Confessions. In which, if you are a fan of scandalous... Uh, 18 rated situations. Boy, does he discuss them. He, however, we're not going to focus on that. We're not going to focus on on uh, Rousseau's views on all manner of things. And I wish I could unread it. 
We're going to focus on a book of his called Emile. E-M-I-L-E. It's a novel, but it's not really. It's a fictionalised account of a young person who grows up free to do what they want, surrounded by nature. Because if you pay attention to nature, you will grow up to be a well-rounded, good citizen of place. And that's the message of the book. Wordsworth, big, big, big fan of this, raised his own children the same way. Because nature is all you need to know about. It's a weird one, nature, in this. And please, please, please don't be like, it's the power of man versus the power of nature. No, nature is the divine. Nature is a force beyond human comprehension. But nature <coughs> wants to help us. Nature is interested in Wordsworth and she wants him to be the best that he can. So much like a teacher, or if we're going to get Freudian here, a parent replacing his own parents who weren't there, she guides him to a situation but stops when he gets too far. And he resists nature's suggestions the whole way through the prelude. And that's kind of the tragedy of it, because he realises if he'd have listened to this natural force, then he would have been better off. What nature is able to give him as the reward is access to imagination, access to the sublime with a capital S, the all-knowing creative force that is the human imagination that poets, true poets, have access to. Right, 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 according to Blake and Wordsworth and a bunch of other people. Because remember, we're at the point in history where people are sort of trying to work out what is imagination, what is the soul, where are we at? And that's what it is. The nature is what grants us the imagination, the divine imagination, according. Yeah, right, fair enough. Let's talk about spots of time so my understanding of this is a spot of time is a moment that's incredibly vivid in your memory and incredibly important right so think back to an occasion that is in your mind really really vividly even though it may have happened years and years and years ago so for me i mean <laughs> again this is turning into quite an autobiographical episode i was a well i was a working dj for four years but when i was at university it's how i paid for things and i remember my biggest set uh we played propane nightmares by pendulum getting ready to mix and this just this one beautiful moment where I looked out and there was a sea of people dancing and the lights were there and it was just perfect and I will carry that forever and it's also where I learned to do audio so I mean comments on that depending on uh, 
whether you think my audio is any good, but that's a spot of time that I can tell you about. There's actually a couple of spots of time in the full prelude. There's one where he steals birds' eggs, and again, nature warns him and she pushes him back. There's one where he's ice skating, and he's sort of becoming aware of his physical body. In like a very young child way, you know, like them, they pick up something and they realise it's their own hand picking it up. And there's another one where he sees a dead body just randomly hanging there. And like it impresses upon him the nature of life and death. It's these episodes that he wants to pick out and share with us. It just, I really, really wish, actually, someone had picked the uh, bird's eggs one of the anthology, because it's a lot more fun. But, whatever. This is just one of a set of spots of time, which he presents to us. Let's talk about another, another really good event. As uh, Deng Xiaoping said when he was asked the effects of the French Revolution, he said it's too soon to tell. French Revolution, monumental, just ridiculously important in the history of 18th century philosophy, politics, poetry, everything. But for Wordsworth, he got there a little bit late. (laughs) He actually went to France just sort of after the dust had settled. His aim was to work there for six months, learn French and like do his thing. But he actually got really, really caught up in it. And he really, really, really believed it. And he actually met a girl. Uh, They fell in love. He wanted to get married to her. But then things got a little bit bit hairy for Brits chilling in France at this point. So he had to go back home. And turns out she was pregnant and had a little girl. He had kind of a distant relationship with this little girl his whole life. But she was sort of in the picture. However, he gets back to London. He's separated from the woman he wanted to be married to. All his grand ideas about liberty, equality and fraternity. He's looking at what's going on in France and how many massacres are happening. And he's like, oh God, oh God, I got it wrong. And that's a trauma that he highlights in the prelude. But since that's an adult bit, this could be another foreshadowing this could be again that he's foreshadowing points where i have felt trauma points where i have felt loss and he's lost the security of knowing that nature is on his side because of what he did this guilty thing of stealing a little boat so it could be leading up to his other traumas losing his passion losing his faith in liberty and the french revolution i mean we hope not but this could also be foreshadowing conflict in his life because there's a conflict between what he wants and what nature wants and he had a conflict later on he was always broke always 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 broke uh but he had these like distant cousiny benefactors friends of his dad whatever like these connections and they got him a job <laughs> crazy right his job was kind of like 50 percent working for the post office 50 percent tax collector 
Like he'd go round and get the uh, the money that people had taken for uh, selling stamps. Okay, not too harsh. Cool, fine. But it was a very uh, Tory-minded sort of thing. It was very establishment. And he didn't really want to take it. But he had a lot of dependents. He had his wife, he had his kids. He had his sister who lived with him the whole time, including after he was married. Plus various other hangers-on. So he took it. And he absolutely loved it because he realised that money can be used to purchase goods or services. And it kind of became this conflict. Like, I can live this wild romantic life or I can actually get money and buy things which I like. So are we foreshadowing conflict? Are we talking about how he's experienced conflict to lead on to a further discussion of his job? I mean, it doesn't come up in the prelude, but it does, I mean, it would come up in the recluse, right? The conflict between God and Adam and Eve. So, yeah, this could be an example of a conflict he experienced at an early age. I mentioned his sister. Dorothy Wordsworth is quite a mysterious character. Her and Wordsworth were, um... Absolute best friend. I would say soulmates in like the sen- the very literal sense of the word of like, you know, their souls were met. They were fostered together at a young age um, at this foster family. And then they didn't see each other for many, many years. And they loved each other so deeply. And it was sort of just the two of them for a long time. We can see in Dorothy's writing, because she kept a journal and also in her own poetry, that she herself was a very talented poet and she also edited her brother's work. So, is this a solo effort? We don't know. (laughs) To be honest, I can imagine her giving like at least criticism or like comments on it. She had her role in it, but Despite their fairly atypical, sort of relatively equal living situation, the poem is weirdly gendered. One evening led by her. So nature is female. Okay, this nurturing, maternal, teachery role. And Wordsworth is the male. He is active. And the woman's just kind of sitting there. So why why have this very... Stereotypical Georgian gendered view when his own life was so very different. Bit of a weird one. Even though Wordsworth was like, yeah, liberty, all this, when he was young, he kind of was really English about it, and he thought change shouldn't be led by the aristocracy or royalty or the common people. It should be led by the local country gentry because they were in touch with what with the normal people and what they wanted but they were also educated and it's this kind of like weirdly kind of hypocritical view that led to byron absolutely hating him lord byron subject to the next episode absolutely hated him and called him turdsworth which i uh, that fact just brightened my life It might also have been co-authored by someone else. Someone called Samuel Coleridge. Coleridge is another poet who 
was slash is very popular and i am literally googling him right now because i again same as paradise lost i forgot every single poem he's ever done and i think i just shouted rhyme of the ancient manager or something it's rhyme of the ancient mariner and he mariner and he did kubla khan and he did aeolian harp there's a couple of um really famous ones he's done but coleridge was wordsworth's like bestie slash flatmate slash he sort of just ditched his wife to go live with wordsworth and his sister in this like really romantic lifestyle that they all had uh, he they became known as the lake poets and they had some other friends as well Coleridge and Wordsworth definitely collaborated on a lot of things and they definitely like worked in tandem so if you're a scholar you can see Wordsworth's like fingerprints all over Coleridge's stuff and the other way around so even though we're saying this is like a confessional piece it's also got this like collaborative vibe that isn't really expressed and that gentle listeners is where i shall leave you as soon as i've said goodbye i'm going to finish this with a really 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 gorgeous reading of the poem and a massive massive thanks to my voice actor kezia because i really appreciate this so that is where i shall leave you metaphorically on the top of mount snowden like that don't don't it's really really far my sister tried to climb it and she regretted it sdi talk english on twitter straighttalkingenglish.com youtube straight talking english amazon the full context join us next week for when we two parted in silence and tears and i will tell you the overly dramatic tragic story of byron getting dumped so enjoy this reading and i will speak to you next time one summer evening led by her i found a little boat tied to a willow tree within a rocky cove its usual home straight i unloosed her chain and stepping in pushed from the shore it was an act of stealth and troubled pleasure nor without the voice of mountain echoes did my boat move on, leaving behind her still, on either side, small circles glittering idly in the moon, until they melted all into one track of sparkling light. But now, like one who rose proud of his skill to reach a chosen point with an unswerving line, I fixed my view upon the summit of a craggy ridge, the horizon's utmost boundary, Far above was nothing but the stars and the grey sky. She was an elfin pinnace. Lustily, I dipped my oars into the silent lake, and, as I rose upon the stroke, my boat went heaving through the water like a swan. When, from behind that craggy steep, till then the horizons bound, the huge peak, black and huge, as if with voluntary power instinct, upreared its head. I struck and struck again, and growing still in stature, the grim shape towered up between me and the stars, and still, for so it seemed, with purpose of its own and measured motion like a living thing, strode after me. With trembling oars I turned, and through the silent water stole my way back to the covert of the willow tree. There, in her mooring place, I left my bark, and through the meadows homeward went, in grave and serious mood.
But after I had seen that spectacle, for many days, my brain worked with a dim and undetermined sense of unknown modes of being. Or my thoughts there hung a darkness. Call it solitude or blank desertion. No familiar shapes remained. No pleasant images of trees, of sea or sky. No colours of green fields. But huge and mighty forms that do not live like living men. Moved slowly through the mind by day and were a trouble to my dreams. 